How come those lyrics never caught on? <laughs> Here's Felix Pinnell, our resident historian, to talk about a partnership between the National Park Service and Amtrak, which has placed volunteer guides on some routes for many years. And now the local team for the Coast Starlight and the Empire Builder is ramping up and looking to recruit new members. So uh, you're going to tell us what it takes to join the ranks. So what is this group called? Well, it's called Trails and Rails. And this, you know, they're on the uh, Coast Starlight and the Empire Builder between here in Portland and here and Glacier National Park. And they're on routes all around the country, other Amtrak routes. But this is the local group here. Have you ever run into these guys on the train? No, I have yeah. not. Yeah, I, I, it's been a few years since I have, but they're out there, and they were slow during the pandemic. But it's a great idea. It's a two-person team of knowledgeable guides. They're in the lounge car. They narrate a historical tour as a train makes its way down the tracks. They try to think of this as a national park on wheels, which is why the Park Service is involved. Now, a few days ago, I sat down with two Trails and Rails volunteers at the Klondike Gold Rush National Park in Pioneer Square. They're getting ready for an informational event for new potential volunteers on February 10th. We'll have more details about that in a moment. Now, Rob Carr loves Northwest history, and he's an articulate and affable guy who did outside sales before he retired. So when he's giving a tour, Rob isn't mumbling dull paragraphs into a bad PA system. He's usually up on his feet and doing what he calls working the train. First thing I do when I'm on the train, set the speakers up, and I go introduce myself to the people on the train. Where are you heading today? And it begins the conversation. So when we talk about, you know, we're going to talk about Mount Rainier. It usually starts with some folks down there from Iowa. You've probably never seen a, a, a volcano, have you? We have it. Guess what? If we're lucky today, so the beauty of what we're doing is a lot of the stuff is interacting with the, with the customers on the train. And people ask, what do you like about it the most? I've met people from all over the world. Now, trains are transportation, of course, and sometimes a passenger might not be interested in learning about who named Centralia or the origins of the Winlock egg. I, I can't understand I can't why. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's a head scratcher. Although that big egg does go by the window awfully fast. Now, um, with customer <laughs> service in mind, Rob says he and the other guides are sensitive to the audience. They don't force anyone to participate, and they focus not on lecturing, but instead on engaging. Sometimes you look at the people, and they're on their laptops, and they're not really paying attention, so we leave them alone. It's up to us to engage them, go and say, now, Felix, you might be interested in learning about the Columbia River. Are you a fisherman? So the style is to be very conversational. Therefore, volunteers coming in can fit in a much easier thing than having to learn this thing rote. So I also talked to Jim Egan. He began volunteering back in 2011. He's now one of three coordinators to manage the program in Seattle, which sends volunteers to Portland and back on the Coast Starlight and to Glacier National Park and back on the Empire Builder. Now, new volunteers get two days of classroom training. They go on six training trips with other seasoned guides. And expectations are that a volunteer will do something like eight to ten trips a year between April and October. And you, you do get a green shirt and a badge, but you have to provide your own khaki pants. I want to make that really clear. And they have a well-written and organized route guide. It's you know, about 100 pages long, which they've assembled. It's kind of a baseline for the tour. But it's not about memorizing lines, especially for new volunteers. We don't expect you to know that whole route guide. Uh, we expect you to know there's some basic, we, we call them uh, points of interest, POIs, that you, you, know, you need to be versed in. And we also like people to you know, do their own research. Uh, and then come. a lot of people come with some personal stories which are great that even makes it come more alive about you know your ancestor farmed out here um lots and lots of stories so that's cool you know jim mentioned the guys are encouraged to do research kind of make this thing their own rob carr does that he also actively solicits questions from passengers which can then lead to new information that he adds to the tour he was telling me about a pastor named george who asked where the name kaiser permanente came from 
since Rob was talking about the old Kaiser shipyards down near Vancouver, Washington, where they built Liberty ships during World War II. Now, Rob didn't know, but he told George he'd find out. So while Rob's tour partner took over the narration, um, Rob did some Googling. Kaiser's wife lived near the uh, Permanente Creek down in California and said, that's a beautiful name. Why don't we add that so not confusing the, the medical service with the steel company and the aluminum thing? So that's where the name came from. The point of the story is, I went back and I said to George, and so now we know the rest of the story, and we wouldn't have known that if George hadn't asked me the question. So thank you, George, for asking that question. The George lit up like a Christmas tree. I'd buy anything from Rob Carr. He could sell me anything. I'd, I'd, you yeah. know, I'd get un, even like the undercoating on my car or whatever. Anyway, it's great. anyway, now Jim Egan says the tour guides, they don't just fill up the dead air the whole time the train's underway like we do on this show, right? They try to give the passengers a chance to think about what they've heard or to just look out the window and enjoy the scenery. We discourage the Energizer bunny approach that you wind yourself up here at King Street Station and don't stop talking until the train's rolling into Portland. If that does happen, you'll see most people have left the car uh, or gone back to their laptops or fallen asleep. Now, I also spoke with Sierra Prakna. She's a marketing executive with Amtrak. She told me Amtrak loves this program, loves the volunteers, wants to see it expand. She's based in Washington, D.C., but she's been out here and traveled the route. She says the West Coast is one of her favorite uh, trails and rails parts of the country. Now, when she said that, I just felt emboldened to offer an unsolicited suggestion. And on a very personal note, there's part of the route where they go. you go past this big egg in the town of Winlock in southwest Washington. Felix, How, I wonder... that was my favorite part. That was my favorite part of that trip. <laughs> I talk about this all the time. It's seeing the world's largest egg. It's too close to the tracks. I think they need to get the city of Winlock to move it away from the tracks so because the, the passengers get to see it for about three seconds. Or if the train can maybe build a loop around it so the train could go around it a few times so people could really see it. I don't know if you guys are open to anything that, that radical, but I think it would be a popular move. It's just free free suggestion for me. I have a very blurry picture on my phone of that egg. <laughs> I, think, I think you're not the only one. So the, the trading session is coming up on Saturday, February 10th at 1 o'clock at the Klondike Gold Rush National Park. There's no advanced registration required. You can go and just in and learn about the information. Then they, they get underway in April with this program. It goes through October. It's just a really cool way to share your yeah. enthusiasm and passion. I can see you doing this, Dave, someday, well, yeah. personally. No, I, I don't think I'd be a volunteer. But I mean, if, you're, <laughs> if you're like alone on the train, here's a guy who has to talk to you, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And you can have at least someone to, to help you pass the time. And as, we, for, as for your preoccupation with the egg. Uh, <laughs> it goes I, by so fast. Well, the, here's the thing. The trouble is there's only one of them. Just build a series of them. That makes it an even better tourist attraction, and there is a better chance you'll actually see the thing. More of a destination. Yeah, I think I like that. That could work. Right. I mean, who buys just one egg? Yeah, a, a dozen right. Winlock eggs. eggs a do- okay. right. should be at least a new an campaign's egg. kind of taking shape here this morning, Dave. Okay. And, they, <laughs> and, and their local arena could be called the Egg Carton, and it would look just like a... Anyway, all of Felix's uh, features are at MyNorthwest.com. Some of his ideas are there, too. Right now, though, to the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case filed by herring fishermen who were upset that a government rule forced them to pay for having a herring inspector aboard their boat. And depending on how the court rules in this case, it could overturn the entire federal regulatory structure, erasing the powers of every agency from the CDC to the EPA and on down the alphabet. Let's go to CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. It's important because this conservative supermajority of the court over the last number of terms has been chipping away at what is known as the the Chevron deference, Chevron as the oil company. And the deference is basically this idea that when it comes to interpreting and applying federal laws or creating laws 
or implementing executive actions in and you're dealing with an agency like the FTA, the SEC, uh, mostly in this instance, the EPA, OSHA, the FDA, uh, on all of those agencies, we defer to the judgment of the people who work there. Why? Well, Dave, they have PhDs. They're really smart. Right. Uh, they're, they're, they're unelected, but they know stuff. But in the last, you know, since the pandemic, we saw this with the CDC, We've seen this with the Clean Water Act, with the Clean Air Act. They have been shipping away at this idea. This, this court is not in love with unelected people making decisions. They think that federal agencies act, you know, on their own uh, under the with the protection of the executive branch, oftentimes in, in cahoots with the executive branch, right? President implements a executive action, right? And then the agency moves in immediately and applies it. And Republicans you know, oftentimes go, what just happened here? <laughs> you know, where did that come from? Don't you need congressional approval? Yeah. Where's the check? Where's the checks and balances? So you've got some herring fishing ring, right? <laughs> Out there. And there's the marine fishing services. They came on the principle of conservation to make sure that we don't overfish in certain areas, especially the herring, they said, well, you know, you, what you got to do is you have to pay to put a monitor on your boat or more than a monitor. And his job or her job is to make sure to stand there and make sure you're not overfishing. Uh, and by the way, the fishermen, fishing industry is responsible for paying for most of that. And they're saying our margins are already tight and you're making us carry a person that's, you know, charging us a fee in order to sort of make sure that we don't overfish. So the, it is a herring case, but it goes to something much deeper because the Supreme Court's been demonstrating its interest in shipping away at the authority of federal agencies. And it wouldn't be a shocker, Dave, if the Supreme Court overturned the Chevron deference, which has been around for a long time. CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. We're going to get an update on the war in Gaza from CBS's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. There have been negotiations between the Israeli military and Hamas to allow medicine to be delivered to the hostages. The medicine is coming from Qatar, uh, and it's a quite a large shipment uh, landed in the airport in El Arish and then is going directly uh, into Gaza without being checked by Israel. So that's a pretty interesting thing. And a Hamas leader said that there will be one box of medicine for the hostages, for about 45 hostages and a thousand boxes of medicine and other aid for uh, for the rest of uh, Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, and it comes uh, after Hamas released a video with three hostages, uh, two of whom uh, it showed as dead and, and uh, their deaths were actually confirmed in the video, uh, which again, this is a Hamas propaganda video, but uh, 26-year-old Noah Argamani uh, said that the two men died uh, from Israeli airstrikes. Israel says it's investigating what how they died, but, but did announce their death. So there's also growing concern about how many of the hostages are still alive. There are a total of 136, but at least 24 of them, and perhaps more, are believed to already have been killed. Okay, now can you explain the current status of Israel's military operation? There was an announcement that it was going to be less intense. What does that mean? 
Well, what it means is that uh, they're going to focus. They say that Israel says it has complete control of northern Gaza, uh, the northern half of, of the Gaza Strip, and they're, it's going to focus on pinpoint operations. And they are withdrawing one of the four divisions that they have in Gaza. They're taking the soldiers out, at least uh, temporarily. That said, there are still tens of thousands of Israeli soldiers in Gaza, and there's still heavy fighting in central and southern Gaza. And I hear that, that uh, Hamas is still able to launch missiles? Well, yeah. I mean, yesterday, 50 rockets were launched at the town of Nitivot, uh, narrowly missing a, a bunch of people who were kind of working outside. And it showed that Hamas does still have the uh, ability to launch missiles. Uh, Israel also says that the uh, extent of the underground tunnel network and the rocket-making facilities is much larger than they had expected, uh, and that there are still a lot of tunnels. Now, Israel has not even uh, gone into the southern city of Rafah, which has more than a million Palestinians, and that's where a lot of the Hamas leaders are still believed to be hiding in the tunnels, and they're also believed to be using the hostages as human shields. I gotta say, I'm, I'm surprised. I thought, you know, from what I've been hearing, that it, at the very least, they'd go after the missile sites, but apparently Hamas is, uh, is still entrenched, so that sounds like this is going to go on for a, a while longer. Well, both, you know, Israeli officials are saying that 2024 will be a year of war, uh, although, you know, there's a lot of American pressure to try to do more to uh, make the situation a little bit better for Palestinian civilians and to, uh, you know, the humanitarian situation in Gaza is absolutely horrible. The medical facilities are not are not functioning at all. There's talk of actual starvation, people really not having anything to eat of, you know, really a very difficult situation. So. There's a lot of pressure on Israel to switch to, uh, you know, smaller targeted operations that would only focus on, uh, you know, Hamas terrorists and not on the civilians. Uh, to what extent it's really possible, it's hard to say. I mean, Gaza is very crowded, as you know, you know, yeah. 2.3 million people in a tiny area. And now it's an even smaller area because most of them have left Gaza, uh, left northern Gaza, and are now kind of crowded into southern Gaza. Um, it's not, you know, certainly the rocket fire has diminished in the last few weeks. But it's still going on, and and there doesn't. And Israel also has not managed to find and assassinate the leaders of Hamas. CBS's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. To the nation's capital, we go. CBS's congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. We have a Friday deadline for a shutdown. First of all, what uh, handicap this for us, Scott? Is this going to happen or not? Yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen um, anticlimactically, Dave. That means they're going to circumvent the normal rules and the normal procedures, rush this thing to passage because not not because they want to do things expediently or by deadline, but because they've got to circumvent the House Republicans who have the majority. Um, this is going to get Democratic votes to keep the government open. And mm -hmm. to do that in the U.S. House, you got to break the rules because the majority would stop you otherwise. So there is a deal here, and it's not going to cost Mike Johnson his speakership. No, um, the, put a pin in that because he keep doing stuff like this, and his job will very much be in jeopardy. Um, this is the same deal, Dave, that cost Kevin McCarthy his job, which is why it's wise you yeah. ask. But I think ultimately Mike Johnson's future may hinge on what he does with Ukraine and immigration reform, and that's what he's going to the White House to talk about this afternoon. Right, and that's uh, becoming a, a bigger deal because Ukraine is saying we don't have, we have nothing else. We have no more artillery shells. Incredibly, uh, is there uh, 
Is there anybody in Congress concerned at all that Ukraine might lose this because we were slow to uh, fulfill our promise to keep them going? Yes, there's concern, universal concern Ukraine might lose. But there's actually quite a diversity of opinions as to whether the United States should still be sending taxpayer money to Ukraine in the Senate. Um, there is near universal support for getting Ukraine money and getting it to them fast. The White House had said they need tens of billions of dollars for Ukraine, that they've used up everything they have, and they needed it by the end of 2023. Here we are in mid-January. It hasn't happened yet. But in the U.S. House, there are dozens of Republicans who say their constituents no longer want to send taxpayer money to Ukraine, Mm -hmm. that too much is vulnerable to waste and fraud, that there doesn't seem to be an end game, that other countries could pick up the slack instead. And that political reality is sinking in, that there may not be the political will to get Ukraine money. Tying it to immigration reform, which is the strategy right now, may help bring some Republicans on board in the House. But I got to tell you, my my general experience, putting two difficult things into the same package doesn't make it any easier to accomplish. Yeah. I've been uh, reading a number of articles from defense experts who are just looking at the whole world, uh, the, the picture of unrest around the world. And, of course, they've been worried all along that if Ukraine loses, then that's the green light for China to absorb Taiwan and for uh, all sorts of other mischief to take place. Are there there any serious is there any serious concern about that strategic possibility? That's the very concern articulated by Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, that this is a moment, it's a flashpoint. And if the United States doesn't act properly, it would incentivize China to move on Taiwan and other U.S. enemies to move aggressively because the U.S. would have shown weak needs. In fact, Lindsey Graham is going to speak about that in a news conference later today here in Washington. That's why I think in the Senate there is the will to get this money to Ukraine because it's, it's a world stage and a world message, and it's in the United States' interests. But to say that the, the, the different chambers of Congress are misaligned is an understatement. There's just no critical mass of support for that right now. And I still think it's more complicated if you try to do immigration reform, perhaps the thorniest of issues in politics, at the same time. I, I, don't, I don't see the end game, and I think that's why the president has invited congressional leaders to come to the White House today. He's got to jumpstart this stalled battery of an issue. Yeah. One thing I, I, I don't think I had a chance to ask you about, and this is uh, on the, the uh, dispute between the feds and Texas on who gets to patrol the border. Did I see a story saying that, that the uh, Texas National Guard was actively preventing Border Patrol agents from, from doing their jobs? Yeah, we got to see if that's a, how that's being characterized. Is it a dispute over who's got jurisdiction in a certain area? That may be that may be a little more an issue of semantics uh-huh. than of you know agents turning away other agents at gunpoint. That's what I was wondering. But yeah, that, but, but 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 this is a palpably visceral issue right now. Is is who has responsibility for this? Is is Texas just going to take it over from the feds? Displeased with the performance of federal agents in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and is Texas overreaching in its efforts to wrest some control? Um, this this is the, the, the tip of the sphere, and I think ultimately some of what you just described has got to get ironed out fast, or there will be problems. Yeah, and something that's a, a pocketbook issue, book issue here: Congress is considering the child tax credit. Now, I've lost track of what the status of that. Is I know it was a, a big deal for a lot of families when it was uh, put in during the pandemic. Where does that stand? 
Yeah, there is there is an agreement on extending the child tax credit, which is no small thing. Anybody with kids who who gets that tax credit, um, it's a matter of how you get it through. Even though both parties support it, there are so many bear traps all over the Capitol right now with the narrow majorities in election year and a backlog of work from 2023 still to do. Um, what's the quote vehicle? What do you put? What do you put that on to get it through Congress right now at this moment when nothing is guaranteed? Good. There's a compromise. That doesn't mean it's reality. Okay. So this is still we we don't know whether it's going to be extended or not. Then at this point, huh? There's a will to extend it, but we most certainly don't know if it'll happen. I get to, Dave. I can't guarantee you that this particular Congress, with the majority so narrow, with a head count so important every day, who's absent, who's here, could agree that the sky is blue and the Seahawks jerseys <laughs> are blue. I mean, it's truly that fragile. I talked to James Comer, chair of the House Oversight Committee, trying to move on Hunter Biden. Yeah. who told me we're going to vote on Hunter Biden next week as long as nobody has the flu and we don't have five people absent that we need to be here for votes. That's the type of reality they're grappling with. Okay. I didn't think we'd hear Hunter Biden mentioned again, but so that's still an issue too? Yes, with an asterisk. Um, it looks like they've, they've, they've delayed the contempt of Congress finding until Hunter Biden commits to a closed-door interview, which he's indicating he will. That could fall off the rails in five different ways, but for now, that's on pause. But again, even if they were going to move on him this week, it would ins- ins- insist that nobody has the flu or a head cold and that everybody was going to be here. <laughs> God, get vaccinated for crying out loud. Uh, CBS's Scott McFarland in Washington. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Dave. Time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Sometimes the smallest gestures can actually mean a great deal. And in the case of one man, he says a complete stranger went out of his way for him. He's on a mission to find that person to thank him. Greg Basil of Ardmore, Pennsylvania, traveled by train to New York City to celebrate New Year's Eve. And later that night, he didn't realize he lost his wallet. He thought of he may have left it at home. But the next day, he watched as his ring camera had video on it, and there was a man waiting for him. I found your wallet. I'm returning it. Found it on my train. It turns out Greg had lost it on the train, but Greg didn't know the man. He didn't leave his name or any way to contact him after dropping off his wallet. He did it just because it was the right thing to do. He was finished with his day and drove to my house. I guess got my address off of my license, drove to my house at night to do this good deed. He said it just really moved him. I was taken back so much. It it, it was just, I was so surprised. That's just so kind on so many levels. I think I do good for people. I have to step up my game because something like this just makes you feel so good. And the search for that kind, generous man continues. I'll update you if they find him. Wow. Yeah, losing the wall on a train from New York to Pennsylvania? Yeah. And then the guy drove to drop off the wall. Never think I'd get that back. Yeah. And here he is from the Gian Ursula Show. Gee, Scott, wearing sparkles this morning or sequins or something. <laughs> good morning, everybody. How y'all doing today? Yeah, fine. Doing good. good. You're good. very sparkly good. today. I'm, I'm trying to be sparkly, all that good stuff, because I'm trying to stay positive. I'm trying to stay in a good mood because I know what you're probably going to ask me. You guys are going to ask me, like everybody asks me when I'm out and about these days, what are the Seahawks going to do about the next head coach? What are the Seahawks going to do about the it's next not what I was going to ask. I was going to ask you how your no sugar diet. I'm just kidding. We talked about that yesterday. Um, so I'll start with this. Like I told everybody. First, 
So never got rid of the last coach. Okay. Now if you are So you're not in support of Pete Carroll leaving. I didn't know that. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, no, don't no. act surprised. I just I oh, hadn't heard yeah. a strong opinion from you Absolutely. about it. Maybe I haven't been listening closely no. enough, but wow, okay. No, we're talking about 14 seasons, right? And I just I'm just not ready for the turbulence that might just just happen. I mean, it's not going to be this I mean, look, in the ideal world, the Seahawks pick up where they left off last season. They were this close, a game away from getting to the playoffs. They pick up from that, and they just ride into the sunset, into the Super Bowl, and win it all next season, Mm -hmm. right? But I have been around football a long time to just kind of understand the workings of it. The Seahawks have a lot of free agents that are on the team right now that are going to be free agents this season, so they have to figure out who's going to be signed. Now you got to figure out who the next head coach is going to be. you got to figure out what that's going to be like. It's not like when you come right in. Remember when you first started living with your significant other? I'm sure it wasn't as good as it is now, right? You got to figure it all out. Like, man. (laughs) Best roommate I've ever had. Man, I didn't know you left your socks right there. I didn't know you left the uh, toothpaste cap off. I didn't know you didn't wash the sink out when you're done. So this is like a marriage, huh? Yes! Right? You got to come in and figure those things out because I know you're going to ask about culture. Now, let's go to the candidates. So right now, they're getting ready. Right now, there's a list of eight I don't have all eight off the top of my head. One of them familiar names is Dan Quinn, right? Yes. He is one of them, used to be uh, defensive uh, coordinator Everybody here. loves him, apparently. Everybody loves Dan Quinn. Then there is Ben Johnson, who is the offensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions. Then there's Coach Slowick, who is the offensive coordinator for the uh, Houston Texans. He's pretty good. Then there's Raheem Morris, who's the defensive coordinator for the Rams. Wow. I don't what do you want to a- see on their resume? in order to be the head coach for the Seahawks. What do you need? I want to see someone that is an offensive mind mm. coach. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ben Johnson, who is a offensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions, whoever, whoever they believe that can beat the Rams in the Niners. And I'm bringing that up because, in my opinion, some of the best play callers in the NFL are head coach Sean McVay for the Rams and head coach Kyle Shanahan for the Niners. Arguably, I think that they are the best play callers mm. in the NFL. So this is about play calls, not the talent on the team? I mean, they're all good, yeah. right? All NFL players, all 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 NFL teams have good mm-hmm. players. They get paid to play. They got the waters wet inside the facility. The, he- the weights are heavy. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? They all have good players. A lot of times it comes down to culture. The, the, the vibe in the building, and mm-hmm. it comes down to scheme, the X's and O's. So the raw it, material is there. For everybody. You just have to you need a guy who can build it into a machine. And you need one more thing. You, need a, you, you have to have that kind of that quarterback that has it, right? The Houston Texans, who previous the last three seasons had won 11 games, right now they're getting ready to go play uh, the Ravens because they've already won one playoff game. They have a special quarterback in C.J. Stroud. So, whoever the Seahawks pick, and I, I think that I, we, we all trust John Snyder to make that, that pick, and whoever it's going to be, whoever it is, is going to have to come in and I and and play and coach against some of the best teams in the, the NFL in this division. The Rams were supposed to have a down year last season, right? Down year, they still make the playoffs, and they were pretty good. So, whoever comes in, do they then? 
Is Geno Smith and Drew Locke, are they up in the air as well, as far as being our quarterback? Uh, Geno Smith, uh, he will. He, he's most likely going to be the quarterback next season, right? According to what the money says. Mm-hmm. So he'll be the quarterback. As far as Drew Locke, I mean, that's probably up in the air. Who knows okay. what's going to happen I wasn't there. sure if a, a new head coach Shh. could come in and kind of clean house and make the team that sure. I mean, he or I mean, she wants. I mean, they, they could, but uh, when it comes to Geno Smith, Geno Smith is still going to get paid uh, sure. next season. So. There's somebody but who can, can run the ball. Too? Yeah. Pardon me? I said, is there somebody who can run the ball, too? I mean, they, they, they have the players to run the ball. I think, uh, you know, uh, Ken Walker III is a good running back. Right. He rushed, He was good last season. Well, the season before, he was decent this past season. They uh, Rookie Charbonnet, hopefully he gets better. So, they again, I think the Seahawks have some pieces. Like every other NFL has the pieces. It's always the little things, such as life, right? Needs the magician to come in and make magic, right? It's it's, it's in the details. The wizard. It's in the details. All right. Thank you for teaching us. G. Scott with Ursula starting at 9 on Kyra News Radio. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan and Kate Stone is here now. The three Tacoma police officers acquitted in the death of Manny Ellis will not be returning to the department. Kyra News Radio's Kate Stone's been following the story for months. What's the latest, Kate? Yeah, this is the latest development that we got yesterday from Chief Avery Moore. He says officers Christopher Burbank, Matthew Collins, and Timothy Rankin are leaving the department voluntarily. They are voluntarily separating from for, from their positions, and they are getting each a $500,000 settlement. Uh, that's for each officer. Uh, as part of their settlement agreement, attorney Ann Bremner, who represented Officer Timothy Rankin, confirmed that to us. They went through three years of this, and they were finally exonerated. But then to go back into the same community, it made more sense for them at least now to separate and, and look at um, options of where they want to go next. So some people were surprised that the officers were not returning to their positions, but Bremner says she was not surprised, and a lot of people with knowledge of the situation said that this was the expected outcome. Now, as far as the results of the internal investigation, Chief Moore said that the officers were cleared of any violations under the policies that were in place in 2020. However, he emphasized that those use of force policies, particularly that existed in 2020, failed to serve the best interests of the police department in the community and has since undergone significant changes. And the Tacoma Police Department is actively undergoing an overhaul of its policies. Now, Mayor Victoria Woodard's Describe some of those changes at last night's city council meeting. Officers can now be interviewed during an internal investigation concurrently with a criminal investigation. It also creates a felony suspension rule. She also said that the 2020 use of force policies for TPD are different now. Now, shortly after Ellis died in March of 2020, the officers were internally cleared. They were back on active duty, but public outcry, including from the mayor, pushed the department to place them on paid administrative leave, which has continued for nearly four years. As for what happens now to the officers, Ann Bremner says her client, Timothy Rankin at least, is exploring his options after being found not guilty of manslaughter last month. We've heard that here's going to share Troyer would offer them jobs down there uh, readily. He said that. Now, to be clear, that's not a formal offer from Sheriff Troyer. This is based on comments he's made in the past. So, right and Ann Bremner represented him in his court case where he was yes. accused of, of using racism when, yes. when called. So I just want to make that 
clear as it's well also, that Anne has a relationship, a professional relationship. It's also with important Troy. to note the Pierce County Sheriff's Office was the one who led the initial investigation into yeah. Manny Ellis's death until there was a conflict of interest revealed three months in, yeah. and the state took over the case after it was revealed that there were witnesses that Pierce County had never even interviewed. So this whole thing is is a mess because of all of those factors. But it sounds like new policies will be in place. They are already in place, but they're they're continuing to develop new policies and kind of essentially Chief Moore had a a pretty strong statement where he said, you know, I acknowledge the detrimental impact of policing on black indigenous and BIPOC communities. And I extend both a personal and collective apology for that. And basically he and the Tacoma city manager and the mayor have all said they want to move forward. They want to build trust in the community, which Ellis's family and their supporters have said this trial has has broken trust between the community and the police department. Monet Carter Mix and Manny Ellis's sister actually talked about that to the council during public testimony last night. No one even bothered to argue the fact that we should make it an issue to actually fire people who murder people. It shouldn't be allowed. You guys cannot continue to let killer cops get away with beating people senselessly in the middle of the street. Now, this doesn't necessarily mark the end of this. It's been a long process, of course, and the officers, to be clear, have been acquitted of all state criminal charges. The U.S. Attorney's Office for Western Washington is opening a federal review of this case. It's not clear if anything will come of that, but they are checking to see if any federal laws were broken through the officer's actions. Under the new policies that have been put in place and that they continue to work on, would there have been a different outcome for these officers? And I'm not looking to, you know, double jeopardy, get them in trouble, but I am looking to understand, you know, what they did to Manny Ellis and now the new policies would, you know, did they make these new policies because they saw what they did and went, ooh, that's not good. We can't do that anymore. It's, from Chief Moore's statement, that seems pretty clear. Yeah. If reading between the lines there, it's it's pretty obvious that he's saying that the 2020 policies were very different from what they are mm. now. And if this, I mean, it's hard to speculate, but if this situation had happened now, there would be very different policies in place that might lead to a very different outcome. Because they a, can't restrain like they did with Manny Ellis anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's and impossible that was the basic to say argument exactly. that the restraint is yes. what led to his death where yes. they said the methamphetamine did. So, yeah, Correct. the new policy would. Right. Yeah. And there's but a difference. The precedent between, here, based on this verdict, what they did was legal. That's what that jury said. The policy, there is a right? difference between being found criminally liable and being found responsible for things uh-huh. under the departmental policy. So they're policy. saying it was the policy was wrong. And that, that was the yeah, problem. I mean, here. he said that. He said it failed to serve the best interests of the community. Chief Moore was very clear about that. And that they updated the policy, not just specifically because of this incident, but largely because of it. All right. Okay. A little confusing to me, but okay. Kate Stone, thank you. Thank you. Seattle's Morning News. It's Mickey time. And we're going to talk about uh, mocktails. Mm-hmm. Adults are going booze-free now. Yeah. And is it a particular generation? Because we have our chief millennial correspondent, David Burbank, here. And I'd be interested <laughs> Ooh, in I love have, that title. Thank you, you. Have you have you gone alcohol-free, too? Uh, no, nah, not me personally. But no. I, I will say I've tried many of the... As a producer the... of a radio show. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've tried many of the uh, the sort of mocktails at different restaurants. Actually, mm-hmm. my wife loves making cocktails. And so when we have friends over, a lot of our friends are now going without alcohol. But we still want to create the sort of 
drinking, fun social yeah, experience. Yeah, the atmosphere. Yeah, and so we'll substitute uh, alcohol for either more bitters or uh, some extra citrus, lemon juice, stuff like that, mm-hmm. and still make the experience of the cocktail. And I love the taste of them. I really love uh, a lot of non-alcoholic beers. Uh, oh. Stella Artois has um, solely just so you should just about beers that actually taste I know, right? good. Yeah. Uh, and so Sully, it's, a, it's a growing trend with my <laughs> with my generation uh, who want to have that fun aspect of drinking. Don't want the hangover. Don't well, want wait the Wait a second, wait a second. Was it all health? I thought it was all about the alcohol. So the alcohol was, was what made you more interesting. Well, it, well, maybe you, Dave, we're interesting all on our own. So here's what here's what I found out: mocktail sales are breaking records here in our our area bars, restaurants, and in grocery stores. By the way, part of it is because of Dry January, which has become the new popular trend, and Gen Z and millennials are really driving this trend home, especially on social media. There's even a day to celebrate Mocktail Monday. I mean, good I mean, for this generation, but isn't right. this also the generation addicted to vaping? <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to look at right. that one advice for replacing with another. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, marijuana. We're all being yeah. like, and I don't hey, mean good job, way, kids. But I can tell you guys, just younger than uh, than David, my son's guy, guys who are like tw- 19, 20 to 22, 3-ish, mm-hmm. uh, all legal, of course. Now, they they don't like the hangover either. Mm-hmm. They prefer marijuana they call to, Cali sober. To, yeah. to the alcoholic oh. drinks. So I have noticed a kind of a shift that way, but one vice for another. But yeah, I just don't understand non-alcoholic beer. I mean, well, what's, why take the calories for nothing? I mean, come it on. It tastes good. Well, listen, yeah, people, people just want to become social again, according to what we found on social media. And to keep the non-alcoholic drinkers feeling inclusive and trendy, some bars and restaurants added the unboozy cocktails, beers, and wine I have noticed to that their more. menus. Yeah. And so, you know, bar owners say mocktail sales are up 20%. Uh, as matter of fact, they make up 20% of their bar sales. Um, Nielsen, which is one of the largest uh, data research companies in the world, says non-alcoholic sales for the very first time ever have surpassed $500 million. Uh, you know, something... Well, you know, is, that's, yeah. it's a racket because yeah. they charge as much for the non-alcoholic yes. drinks right. as for they the do. alcohol. Absolutely. Interest. And I was going to say something else driving this, driving the price of that $500 million mark is the fact that we're in the midst of inflation. Mm. So that's another thing. But people don't want to, you know, what we found and what I found on, on social media is that people don't just want to go to the restaurant and say, oh, I'll have, you know, the, the non-alcoholic version of that. And then yeah. they get, you know pineapple with a cherry drink, you know? Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. they want it to look. They want the aesthetic. They want yes. the sugar around the rim. They want the lime. They want, they you know. They can post the picture still to Instagram. Right. It still looks like a cocktail. That's a big thing. <laughs> and it's all about and it's all about the experience, the you know? Picture. I mean, I, I, I started uh, when I was pregnant. I was drinking uh, shrubs. You know what those are? No. They're like apple cider, vinegar-based, flavored syrups mm. that you add to the mocktail. And it's a digestive and also so it tastes good as well. It's called a shrub. Well, I was just in oh. Utah for, uh, you know, hanging out with some friends and the hotel that we were staying at had a sign and it said mocktails start at six o'clock. And I, I I really I'll be honest. I didn't know what a mocktail was, which is what went, which is what, you know, drove me to, to look this up. And my friends were like ho humming like, oh, man, call and see if they have alcohol. And I'm like, well, they do. They've got mocktails. But no, I went down there <laughs> went in had Utah. A mocktail, and some of the people didn't know that the mocktails didn't have alcohol. So they started. Started acting a little buzzed, uh-huh. and then finally I said, "Hey guys, you know these are non-alcoholic." So That's I thought that funny. was really funny. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> well, that's pretty good. If you can if you can act buzzed without getting the hangover, that's the best of both. We should ways. make some mocktails tomorrow yeah. or Friday because you can drink those on air without getting in trouble, and we can like we can taste the selection, oh, see what they're if they're up to snuff. What you a got great it. idea! Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.